It's a simple story. Cain kills Abel. God comes around and asks him, where is your brother? He replies, am I my brother's keeper? Then God punishes him for what he's done. If there's a lesson in here about how we're supposed to treat each other, look out for each other, the lesson is so broad that it's almost useless. Yes, it says, you're your brother's keeper to the extent that you shouldn't actually murder your own brother. It's not until later in the Bible that you get into more practical, everyday kinds of instructions to lend your neighbors money in hard times, give them a place to stay if they need it, to love your neighbor as yourself. The story of Cain and Abel is kind of a a blunt instrument. A guy misjudges what he should do, and then someone dies. It's the first death in the Bible. Abel is the first person to die, and it's because his brother screwed up. But today on our program, we have three stories of people trying to figure out how to treat their brothers and their neighbors, and whether they should step in to help, trying to figure out if stepping in will do anyone any good at all. From WBEC Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Our program today, Brothers Keeper, Biblical Stories Ripped from the Day's Headlines. Act 1, Whatever Happened to Baby Cain. In that act, Jonathan Goldstein retells the story of Cain and Abel. Finally, we get to hear Cain's side of things. Act 2, This Land is Your Land, This Land is My Land, or maybe not. We hear the story of somebody trying to help all sorts of people who absolutely do not want his help. Act 3, Neighbor's Keeper. In that act, could anyone in a small farming town have done anything to prevent a brutal crime committed by one of their neighbors? Stay with us. Act one. Whatever happened to Baby Kane? One of our contributing editors here at This American Life, Jonathan Goldstein, has taken on as his latest project, Rewriting the Bible. Regular listeners to our show may remember his retelling of the story of Adam and Eve a few months back. To tell this story of Cain and Abel, he pretty much uh, picks up the tale where he left off. On their first night outside the Garden of Eden, it was windy and cold, and the air was full of whistling. They scraped at the tree trunks and dug their fingers into the earth. At the top of their voices, Adam and Eve called out to God. We get it, they screamed. You've made your point. To fend off the cold, they hugged each other with all of their might. They thought about all of the things God had said in his wrath. How a little human would one day tear his way out of Eve how they would no longer live forever, but would one day die. These thoughts made them colder. They slept face to face, pressed so tightly together that the bones in their noses hurt. Later they would learn to make clothing, but just then, all they had was each other. Nine months after that first night, this would change. In the beginning, in the garden, a baby was supposed to be a surprise, appearing as suddenly as a sneeze. The way God intended it, two people in love would share a like-minded pretty thought, and there it would be, a baby nesting in a tree above their heads. But the way God intended it did not pan out. On the night their child was born, Eve was asleep, dreaming about the ocean. She was swimming beneath it, breathing in the water like it was air. Very carefully, she climbed onto a shark and rode him. I am actually doing it, she thought. Then the shark turned and bit off her lower body. Eve awoke suddenly. She had begun to give birth. 
Adam hopped from foot to foot as Eve felt the pain crush her into the earth. Yes, this was the baby, and the baby was attached to a vine. After a few days, despite their great care, the vine wore away, and baby Cain was freed into the world. At the time of her second birth, there wasn't the same stage fright. Eve knew the drill. She laid herself on the ground and grabbed two fistfuls of grass. Six and a half hours later, Abel was born. They called Cain over to meet his new brother. They placed the baby in his arms. The baby was slippery, and Cain lost his grip. Abel fell. He lay on the ground, looking up at his brother. He did not cry. Abel could not be rattled. Back in those first days, things changed very quickly. A new person being born meant there was a giant spike in the population. For Cain, it made the planet feel lopsided. He watched Eve bounce the newborn in her lap, and as she cooed at it, he felt the Earth's gravity tilt in their direction. It pulled at the insides of his stomach and made him seasick. Years later, Adam and Eve would have many more children. But just then, there was only Cain and Abel. Because there was simply nobody else, the brothers became very close. They invented their own language and played each other's stomachs like snare drums. They butted their heads like goats and cracked each other's knuckles as though they were cracking their own. They were different, though. Abel was a thinker. He thought about things. If he bit off his own pinky toe, would it grow back? Cain, on the other hand, was a doer. He'd reel back his fist and break a donkey's nose for the sheer thrill of it all. One day, when Adam and Eve thought the children were old enough, they sat them down and told the story of what life was like before they were born. In those days, God was like one of the family, said Adam. Eve told Cain and Abel about the screw-up. What does it mean to die? asked Cain. We're not exactly sure, said Eve. But basically, it means that one day, and this is not any day soon, we will no longer be. There was a silence. Then Abel spoke up. If we won't be, he said, then we won't even know that we're not being. There will be no we to see that we can no longer be. Yes? I guess that's true, said their mother. Well put. Abel smiled and went back to mashing a mutton liver which he was making into pâté for later. Cain, on the other hand, felt like a sharp plum pit had been forcefully lodged down his throat. All his life he had felt like himself, that his hands and fingers, that his thoughts, were his own. Now he felt like they were someone else's, someone who could yank them away at any chosen moment. Until then, it had never crossed his mind that such a thing could be possible. The brothers continued to live their lives, but all the while, Cain felt a new sadness. It was there all the time. It ate with him, worked with him, and in the morning it raised from his bed with him. Dying. It just didn't make any sense. He knew this deep in his heart. He thought nothing was more important than making God change his mind. Nothing. He began to take his sacrifices more seriously. They became elaborate and garish. They involved richly choreographed interpretive dances, colorful oblong facial masks, and the very best of his legumes. 
but God never answered. Cain started to change. When he got a splinter, he cursed the heavens all out of proportion. Back in the Garden of Eden, there were no splinters, Cain said to Abel. Instead of splinters, they had trees that sprouted kernozzles and home fries. He even started to resent his parents. He spoke of them as though they had gambled away his inheritance. If it hadn't have been for ignoramus number one tempting ignoramus number two, we'd be living in luxury. Cain tried to get Abel all worked up about the whole thing, too, but Abel had an easy-come, easy-go-we-all-have-to-die-some-day attitude that drove his brother crazy. As long as he had his sheep, as long as he could rub his naked feet through their wool, Abel felt that things were really not so bad. Cain invented a game he called Get the Hell Out of Eden. He always insisted on playing God. Get your naked asses out of here, yelled God. What? But we just got here, yelled Adam and Eve. Maybe there's some kind of mistake. The Lord does not make mistakes. God would then kick his brother in the ass. He would fall to the ground and, holding his ass, say, Please, please have mercy on me. Let's play something else. And God would laugh. Now that he was older, every week Abel would choose the fattest firstborn sheep and sacrifice them to God. Everything Abel did in life was for a reason. He ate so that he would not be hungry. He made clothes so that he would not be cold. But making sacrifices to God, he did it for reasons he could never know. He did it simply because he was told to. There was something about that that made him feel clean and deep. Adam and Eve made their sacrifices out of fear, of being further punished and Cain was pleading for answers and changes. But Abel fulfilled his obligation and walked away expecting nothing from God. He was glad with the way things were, and God could not have helped liking that. Meanwhile, Cain decided to test out a new approach with the Lord. He believed that God would have greater respect for him if he did not kowtow. He's going to kill us, he thought. He wanted God to understand that he couldn't walk all over people and then still have them come crawling back with their arms loaded up with gifts. No, they had to get tough. So Cain's sacrifices became more and more lackadaisical. He did not even check to see whether his gifts were being received or not. That would look like he was caving. Then one day, while Cain was lying in a field, Abel came running over. God spoke to me, cried Abel. Cain shot up and looked at his brother. What did he say? He said he was a great fan of my sheep. He told me to keep up the good work. Was my name mentioned? asked Cain. It didn't come up. What was it like to hear his voice? asked Cain. Look at me, said Abel. I'm still shaking. There was a certain pang that Cain started to feel a lot. It was in his stomach. He felt the pang grow sharpest when he looked upon his brother. He could hardly speak with him without having to hunch over in pain. Since the world was still new and no one had yet felt this way, Cain did not know that it was jealousy he was feeling. Instead, he decided that his stomach no longer wanted to be his stomach. It wanted to escape his ribcage. It wanted to be Abel's stomach. This was because he wanted to be Abel. There was no shame in this. Being able meant being happy. 
Being Cain meant being wretched. Being Cain had brought him nothing. He had a plan. He approached Abel with it. He decided to just spring it on him. I am no longer Cain, said Cain. I am now Abel. We are both Abel. All right, said Abel. The two Abels performed routines for the amusement of their brothers and sisters. How's that apple, Abel? It's fine, Abel. Abel, could you pass it over so that I may have a bite? I, Abel, don't see why not, Abel. Then one day things became more grave. If I am Abel, said Cain, then I am just as much Abel as you yourself are Abel. I suppose that's true, said Abel. Then before God, are we not both Abel? Asked Cain. Well, in the case of being before God, I think at that time I would be Abel, and you would go back to being Cain. That won't do," said Cain. His eyes lingered on his brother. He looked at this other Abel as standing in the way of who he was. He was Abel. He knew this in his heart. He simply wanted it more. This way, God would have to show Himself. This way, God would have to stop playing possum and get directly involved in what was going on. These were Cain's thoughts. Abel was among his flock when Cain neared him. Slowly, Cain pulled out his stick, and slowly he lifted it into the air. Still, though, there was no sign of God. He looked at the back of Abel's head. Then he looked into the sky. Just in case God was reading his mind, he thought to himself, "I'm really, really going to do it." He brought his stick down onto his brother's head. He could hear no sound at all. Abel just toppled over. He toppled over the way he did everything, with an easygoing acceptance. He sank to the earth as though thinking, "I must fall, so I will fall. I am falling. I have fallen." Cain grabbed his brother by the shoulder and turned him over. His brother's eyes were wide open. It was like Abel was looking past him, over his shoulder, and up into the sky. When they were kids, there was a game they played where Cain would do something, something bad, and Abel would look over just behind him, as though spying their father who had been watching. Cain, full of fear, would slowly turn to meet his father's gaze. When he'd see that there was really no one there, he would laugh. Now it was like Abel was playing at their game, but this time he did not move a muscle even to smile. Here it was, death. Cain couldn't believe it. He'd been sure that at the last moment God would step in. He would have thought that only God could have taken a person's life, but it was as simple as killing a sheep. Abel. His eyes wide and unblinking stared directly into the mystery of life and death, and he was not saying a word about any of it. Cain sat back and waited. The sheep continued to graze, and the sun continued to shine. There were no bolts of lightning, no booming voice from behind the clouds. Life went on. That night, God appeared before Cain in a dream. "Where is your brother?" asked God. It's always about my brother," said Cain. "Do you ever ask me where I am? No, that you don't think of. What have you done?" asked God. "Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground." "Am I my brother's keeper?" asked Cain. God did not answer. He just gave him a look. 
it made Cain feel naked and small. He then felt the finger of God upon his forehead. It sank through his head and into his brain, where it spoke. The earth shall scorn you, said the voice from the finger. I shall scorn you. You will wander the earth and death will not come. There will be no escape from your guilt. All will look upon you and none will dare kill you, for they will know you by your mark. God withdrew his finger, leaving behind a fingerprint on Cain's forehead that was shaped like a teardrop. At first he tried to convince himself that the mark was to protect him, that he had a secret pact with God, that they understood each other. For a while, he would wake up in the morning and pretend to be immortal and famous, but he was not very good at pretending. So as the centuries passed, Cain abandoned farming and roamed the earth. He walked with a sense of purpose, just in case anyone was watching, but in his heart he knew he had nowhere to go. He became so lonely and full of regret that instead of fearing death, he became yearnful of it. He would chase after bears and they would scamper away. They haven't the balls, he'd say. Run, you little bitches, he'd call out to the tigers. Run, you yellow turds, he'd cry into the face of an alligator as he tried in vain to pry open its jaws. More centuries passed and Cain's desire for death became nearly constant. He would think about Abel up in heaven, palling around with God, flying through the clouds on God's shoulders, while he was left to futz around for hundreds of years, begging his own children to drive tree branches through his heart. In life, Cain had been jealous of his brother, but it was in death that he became more jealous than he ever thought was possible. He could feel Abel up there looking down on him. You should see the look on your face, he would hear his brother say, trying to be all serious. You look like a gorilla. Over time, Cain could no longer remember very much at all. Twenty years after the death of his brother, it seemed like it was only yesterday. But after two hundred years, it felt like something that might have happened in a dream. There were details he remembered that now seemed improbable, like the way he saw his brother's soul leave his body and the way it waved goodbye to him and winked. After three and four hundred years, it all felt so long ago that who he was back then felt like someone else. When people he met asked him questions about the old days, he just made stuff up. We had wings, he said. After five hundred years, his story was repeated so often that he only remembered the repeating, not the events themselves. It sounded like a fable something that might have just as easily happened to a fox and a rabbit as to himself and his brother. He began to doubt everything. He even began to wonder whether he had actually ever heard God's voice, whether the mark on his forehead was the mark of God and not just another liver spot. Was this a part of the punishment, he wondered, to be left so uncertain of whether God really was or whether God was only something inside his own head? After 700 years, when he told his story to himself or heard it told by others, he felt nothing. He was too old to feel guilt or remorse or anything. He didn't even miss his brother anymore. He wanted nothing from God. He wanted nothing from the world. The world was what it was. He didn't need it to change. And in this way, he'd finally gotten his wish to be just like Abel. 
and then God let him die. Jonathan Goldstein, he's the author of the novel Lenny Bruce's Dad. Coming up, trying to help a bunch of people who don't really want your help in what you really could call a biblical setting. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, Brother's Keeper, stories of when it is hard to figure out exactly what you're supposed to do for others, exactly what your responsibility is. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, This Land is Your Land, This Land is My Land, or maybe not. Nancy Updike has the story of a man who's tried to save a whole country and how that's going. Most people are repelled by what they don't like. They avoid it. They don't want to see it or hear it or think about it. Dror Etke spends all day looking at what he hates, seeing more and more physical evidence of a future he dreads, talking at length to people he vehemently disagrees with. Yes, I think this is the place, most likely. What are you seeing? Uh, Two, three containers, uh, three mobile homes, I mean. One Subaru, a huge menorah, two black water containers, and obviously a beginning of settlement. Dror may be the only person in the world who knows and is willing to discuss the name and location of every Israeli settlement, every shack, mobile home, housing cluster, bypass road, and town in the West Bank. In his rented Mitsubishi truck, he monitors settlements for the Israeli organization Peace Now. He gets calls from the American consulate requesting briefings and statistics. Israeli parliament members use his database. He's driven, he works alone, and he is not popular. His single-minded mission is to expose a process that many people would like to keep quiet. Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon told his cabinet in June that settlement building could continue as long as it was discreet. Don't celebrate, he said, just build. A settler spokesman agreed. The less talk and the less documentation, the better, he told an Israeli newspaper. Nearly half of the West Bank, 42%, is now controlled by Israeli settlers and the local and regional land councils that govern them, a political fact that makes any future peace agreement significantly more difficult. So several times a week, Dror gets into his truck, throws a bulletproof vest in the back, and does a reverse commute out into the West Bank to see what's going on. Hello. 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 
We pull up to a construction site on a hill about nine miles southeast of Jerusalem, with some men doing work on a bunch of new houses. Dror, who's about six feet tall and solid, strides over to the deeply tanned man in wraparound sunglasses, who seems to be supervising the site. Do you speak English, English? Yes, and I don't, I don't want to talk. You don't want to talk? With this. The microphone. Dror steers him away from the mic and gets him to talk, no problem. He talked to carpentry with him, he tells me as we're driving away, and in the process found out everything he wanted to know. The information which I got is that they build their 122 square meter houses, they're going to build their about five, six units altogether, and they're building it for people who are living right now in those caravans here, uh, but they consider it to be a neighborhood of Nokdim, which is here. A new settlement is like a new freckle. It can be hard to notice unless you're really looking for it. A mobile home appears on a hill somewhere in the West Bank. At first it's just up there, empty. Maybe it's next to a Palestinian village or city, maybe it isn't. A couple of people move in. They set up water tanks, a radio tower, clear a rough road, then bring in a few more mobile homes. Soon there are enough people on the hill that they need defending, so soldiers are assigned to it. Electricity and water lines are run from the nearest, more established settlement. More people move in. Families. Children. The school is started. Eventually, the hills around the original hill need to be claimed in order to protect it. Dora was born in 1968, ten months after the first settlement was created. When he was 15 years old, studying in a religious school in Jerusalem, there were 23,000 settlers in the West Bank and Gaza. When he was 21, and no longer religious, and was finishing his military service in an infantry combat unit, there were 72,000. When he was 28, and just back from years abroad trying to run away from Israel, it was 148,000. When I came back to the country, I started quite soon after to move around the West Bank and to start to look for my own perspective, how actually things go, goes on there. You started driving around the West Bank in... Two taxis. Palestinian taxis, yeah. You just, on your own initiative, when you, when you got back, what, what were you looking for? Well, speaking with people, um, looking at the changes. Uh, you know, the West Bank had, had been dramatically changed during the 90s. The years Dror was away were the early years of the Oslo Peace Accords, a time when many Israelis saw a peaceful solution, two states for two peoples, as inevitable and imminent. The growth of settlements during those years was not widely publicized or discussed. When Dror tried to tell his friends what he was seeing, they'd say, well, we're giving it back anyway, so who cares if a few more houses are being built? And he'd say, no, 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 you don't understand. We're not preparing to give it back. We're preparing to stay. His friend's eyes would glaze over. They'd shrug. It infuriated him. He had no interest in turning his life into a political mission to save his country. He'd spent his years abroad avoiding Israelis, trying not to think about Israel. For a long time, he thought he'd never go back. Settlements were not something he'd ever intended to take on. The first year after I came back to the country, consciously, I was... I was keeping myself detached from this place in some ways. I tried to, at least. I, didn't, I was not really able to do it. But somehow I was trying to convince myself that you know, I could live everywhere in the world. And, and uh, when the time goes on and I'm, I'm here longer, and especially in the last years, I must admit that uh, the settlers had made me, uh, you know, I'm a born-again patriot. 
the, I, I feel that the settlers push me, you know, shove me to the corner, you know, but I have to fight for, the, for this for this place, you know, fighting for our home. This is the settlers' uh, slogan. They're fighting for their home. This is more or less what I feel right now. Jor is calling a new settlement, pretending he wants to move there so he can get information about the place. He has an ever-changing repertoire of deceptions to get information. For a while, he drove around to settlements posing as a cell phone technician so he could ask a lot of intrusive questions. How many people live here? Oh, you'll need a couple of towers then, huh? What about that new road up there? Going to be some people up there, too? They'll need a cell tower. It worked well until a settler blew his cover by asking for ID and then told all the others. When I drove with him, Dror told a lot of the people he talked to exactly who he was, and they spoke to him anyway. But he has no compunction about lying, elaborately, if need be, when he thinks it would help. Like with this phone call. Dror says he knows settler jargon, how to put them at ease. He grew up around settlers in a religious family. He says he understands them, how they think and live. And on the phone... He finds out what he wants yeah. to know by playing a fully like imagined it. alter ego, Drawer, the settler. You know, father of four or five kids, and, um, you know, I was in the army in a specific unit where a lot of religious people were going, and I was, yeah, I married a woman who does a certain thing, you know, she's a teacher. And I always admired the settlers, you know, of course I'm religious, and I totally am affiliated with, but, you know, but I'm a bit afraid, you know. <laughs> I really want to do it, but I have to find the guts, you know, in me. A settler spokesman once joked about Dror. His obsession shows a deep psychic tie to the land of Israel. In his previous incarnation, he must have been a settler. One of the side effects of Dror's job is that even though he disagrees with them, he now has more in common with settler activists than with the vast majority of Israelis. Like settlers, he spends a lot of time in the West Bank, frustrated that the rest of Israel doesn't seem to know or care what's happening there. Like them, his position on the issue of settlements is at the core of his identity. He told me he can't be friends with anyone who disagrees with him about it. In fact, he said it's hard for him to relate to anyone who doesn't see the same things he does every day. We were leaving the settlement of Ariel when an Orthodox man who was asking every man who walked by whether he wanted to pray called out to drawer. They had an exchange. Dror refused to pray, but he did it in a way that let the guy know he had a religious background. According to ancient Jewish law, minors, the deaf, and the retarded are exempt from following religious commands. So I said to him, you know, I'm those three things, you know, I'm, uh, you know, deaf, you know, and I'm, you know, minor, and I'm uh, retarded, so I don't have to do it, you know. So he realized immediately that I, that I know, that I know something. It's not because I don't know. I know, and I don't do it, deliberately. Do you do that to kind of needle them? Yeah, I like to provoke. Yeah, I like you know, like, you like to provoke them. Yeah, I like to provoke them. Yeah. Those guys, are, you know, the fundamentalists, the thing that they're doing, you know, saving the world, redeeming the world, bother me. I don't like it. I don't like. Uh, I don't like people trying to convert other people. You know, You're kind of trying to convert own. people, though. <laughs> Am I? You're right. You're right. So I don't like I don't like people who try to convert religiously people. You don't like the competition. 
Maybe I don't like the competition. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> Also like settler activists, he's always on the job. And like them, he sees his job as a constant effort to correct the misguided all around him. We picked up two 18-year-old settler boys who were hitchhiking. He spent the first 10 minutes of the ride milking them for information. Where do you live? He asked one. Ma'ale Nivona, the kid answered. And how are things at Ma'ale Nivona? Praise the Lord, things are good, the kid said. Yeah, said Dror. How many families are there? 89, 90, the kid said. Once Dror had found out everything he wanted to know, he told them he monitors settlements for peace now, and one of the boys said, I'm curious about your outlook. Can you explain it to me? After saying he wasn't sure he had the energy to get into it with them, Dror began a half-hour argument that got more and more heated and complicated, until finally one of the boys said plaintively, Look, most of the country identifies with us. Forget about it, Dror said, shifting gears. He interrupted the main argument to explain to the kids that in fact both of them and Dror are all in the same boat. Forget about it. Most of the country doesn't give a dick, pardon me, but I'm going to say this bluntly, most of the country doesn't give a dick about what you say or what I say. Both the settlers and Peace Now are tiny groups. The big fight between us is who's able to capture broad public support not by getting people to identify with our ideology, because nobody gives a damn if God promised in some covenant with Abraham, this part of the land of Israel, or some other part. And unfortunately, no one gives a damn in this country about human rights either. Every American administration since 1967 has made some statement against settlements saying that they're contrary to the Geneva Convention, the international law that governs occupying powers, and a serious obstacle to any peace agreement. President George Bush, in a speech that preceded the Roadmap Peace Plan, said, quote, Israeli settlement activity in the occupied territories must stop. Twice, first in 1978 and again in 1992, Israel and the U.S. have come to explicit agreements to freeze settlement growth. Settlements have increased throughout. As they increase and multiply, it's hard to avoid certain questions. Where exactly is a Palestinian state going to fit? And if Israel really intends to withdraw from the West Bank and Gaza to give up land for peace, why keep building? A few weeks ago, Dror testified before the U.S. Senate, the Near Eastern and South Asian Affairs Subcommittee of the Foreign Relations Committee. A senator on tour in Israel a few months back met him and invited him to speak about settlements and settlement growth. I think Draw is probably uh, doing uh, work that has already been done for him, and I think the American government with its satellite services could probably do it even better. Yisrael Maydad grew up in Queens and moved to the settlement of Shiloh in 1981. He's debated Peace Now representatives many, many times. He's a settler spokesman. Uh, I'm sure they know exactly where the roads are, where the caravans are being placed. And uh, for me, actually, he represents a very... Um, sort of uh, unfortunate aspect of uh, Zionism over the past hundred years where they have to run to the non-Jews in order to tell them uh, what's going on. It's sort of uh, an, an element of not accepting democracy. Democracy is you decide, and we had a vote and, uh, recently, and Mr. Sharon had over 65% of the vote. Uh, I mean, what, what he says is, look, they invited me, and my main audience is, is Israel, is Israelis, that, you know, I'm gathering these numbers and trying to put them out to Israel, and 
you know, the Americans just happened to ask me, but my main audience is Israel. Um, you're, you're making a face. He's lying. Uh, you don't think his main audience is Israel? His main audience is the United States of America. I would say to him that uh, he has his political point of view has consistently lost out in a democratic forum called elections in the state of Israel. The polls that have consistently been published about dismantling communities and taking Jews back, etc., like that, have always been for peace. Would you do this? Israelis would do anything for peace, to tell you the truth. But once the crunch comes, they decide otherwise. Usually in elections, polls are not elections. And Draw doesn't realize that. Draw uh, thinks that uh, he his ideological position can be um, moved over onto the majority of the population consistently over the past 37 years. That has not happened. I don't think it will. Where are we coming up to now? We're entering a settlement in Kfar Adomim. Dror believes that settlements will be dismantled and evacuated in his lifetime. He believes this in spite of the fact that just in the time I've been interviewing him for this story, hundreds of new permits for houses in the West Bank have been issued. Eight outposts, some of them illegal, were granted the status of permanent communities by the government. A hundred million dollars was approved by the government to build houses in the occupied territories. And a new incentive program was announced to attract young Israeli couples to settlements in the Jordan Valley. Free rent for four years, plus full college tuition for one person in the couple. Over a hundred couples have signed up so far. Dror's optimism in the face of all this is especially shocking given his personal experience. As we were driving through a block of settlements about nine miles east of Jerusalem, Kfar Domim, Nafi Prat, and Elon, he announced suddenly, My sister lives in Elon. Your sister lives here? Not here, in the other settlement, alone. But in this block of settlements? Right. And, I mean, what does your sister think of what you do? Well, she supports it, totally. She, she votes uh, Israeli. <laughs> she, she, she votes, yeah, yeah. Come she on! Votes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is Israeli reality, you know. So what do you mean she, she supports it? I mean, it, it seems like your whole goal is to well, get her sister, to move out of her house. Right, and my sister moved to this settlement uh, eight months ago or so. Uh, they are living in a container. They're paying uh, $100, $100 rent. Uh, apartment in Israel, in Jerusalem which would have the same size of their container would cost perhaps five times more. So, did... Did your sister talk to you about this before doing it and say, look, I'm going to do this? We had, uh, we had the harshest conversations before. We had very, very hard conversations about it. And she just, uh, I guess, uh, concluded by saying that she would never build a house there in this settlement and that she doesn't consider herself as an obstacle to peace. And uh, if... Um, the Israeli government uh, would decide to evacuate those areas, of course, you would never do anything against it. And nobody is living on this land anyhow. We headed up a rough dirt road near Kfar Domim and Elon, where two empty trailer homes sat on top of a hill, placeholders for an upcoming settlement to add to the block his sister lives in. We went inside one. So this is two bedrooms, a bathroom and a sort of living room, kitchen area. Right, right. It's got... Yeah, exactly the type of trailer which my sister has, well, where she lived, I told you about before. 
This is the kind of trailer your sister lives in. Quite, 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 uh, quite similar. Uh, it's enough for uh, young parents with uh, one baby. I guess my, my my sister is refusing to see. You know, this is what uh, what I told her is that uh, that she is benefiting from extreme unjust political agenda. And this is what she is uh, just uh, closing her eyes to see. You know, claiming that if she is going to Peace Now demonstration one every four years, she is completing her duty. And if she votes the right party every once every, every once every four years, she is completing with her uh, political responsibility. Is I think it's a, it's a very very ig- ignorant thing to say. Uh, I'm living with a consciousness. You know what you're doing privately in your life, how you live, where you shop. How you consume, who you speak with, how do you speak with? This is politics. It sounds exhausting. I look exhausted. You don't look exhausted. Look. On the contrary, you <laughs> seem full of energy and pep. No, I'm but I the, feel very exhausted. <laughs> you feel exhausted. Yes, yeah, exhausted. I feel exhausted, but uh, I don't feel that, uh, that I'm as exhausted that I'm ready to give up. Not at all. This is not what I'm saying. But living here in this country is an extremely exhausting thing. Living here consciously, if you are uh, politically conscious and aware, it's an extremely exhausting thing. You know, I have many friends who are living abroad, mostly in Europe. And uh, I must admit that I'm envying them once in a while. You know, they have much better life than I have. Much, much better. Patriotism is a kind of love, and like any other love, it can be unrequited. There's the patriot, Drawer. He feels responsible to his country, worries about it, has plans for it, feels devoted to it. And then there's the country itself, the patriot's fellow citizens, who usually don't even notice what he's doing. And when they do notice, find it pathetic or enraging or unpatriotic. Nancy Updike lives in Jerusalem. Her story is part of the Hearing Voices Project, which gets funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and is online at hearingvoices.com. Oh, give me land, lots of land Under starry skies above Don't fence me in Let me ride through the wide open country that I love Don't fence me in Let me be by myself in the evening breeze Act 3, Neighbor's Keeper This is the story of a small town in Illinois, a farm town of 1400 called Toulon people usually look out for each other, help out when there's trouble, except when it came to one problem that a few folks in town were facing. People in Toulon have different opinions about when this story begins, but everybody agrees on when it ends. March 22, 2002. Robert Curson wrote about what happened that night in an article that ended up in an anthology of best American crime reporting. This story gets a little grisly. A new deputy was on duty in the town, a deputy named Adam Stryker, a 23-year-old guy who was very new to the force and wanted to do something useful. He's looking for something to do. He's looking for something to do. And so he rummaged around 
uh, in the courthouse and in the station for any outstanding warrants that might need to be served. On this night, he did find uh, an outstanding warrant, uh, one that was five months old and that was to be served on a local resident named Kurt Thompson. Uh, he didn't know Kurt Thompson, and uh, it was just for failure to pay some court costs and fines from a previous case. So he took the uh, the warrant, um, got in the deputy's uh, squad car, and uh, started to drive the short distance to Kurt Thompson's house. Kurt Thompson uh, came to the door and was informed by Deputy Stryker that he had a warrant for Curtis Thompson. Thompson went back into his house and came out with a shotgun, lifted it up, and blew away Deputy Stryker's face and shoulder. Probably killed him instantly. Then, Thompson took the deputy's pistol, jumped in the squad car, lights flashing, and set off to settle some scores. Just around the corner, he visits two neighbors that he'd been feuding with for years and shoots them right in front of their 10-year-old daughter. Maybe a half-minute drive from there, Thompson rams into another neighbor on the street that he doesn't like, but the guy gets away. Thompson goes looking for yet another neighbor he has a grudge against, but that guy's not home. But Robert Kirsten found, digging into old court records, talking to all sorts of people in Toulon, was that this man, Kurt Thompson, had been getting into all sorts of angry episodes and disputes with various neighbors for 30 years. You could get too close to him at the grocery. You could drive too close to him. Very, very minor, petty things that third or fourth graders might complain about uh, in grade school. In one case, some, I think someone's laundry blew onto his property, and that marked the offender for vendetta for years. Well, Kurt began, as we say, casing my house. This is Rick Collins of Toulon. Uh, driving by slowly and watching uh, what I would be doing at my at my home and checking on my dog and and that sort of stuff and giving me the the eye, you know, glaring at me and. What, was it intimidating, the glaring? To a degree, because Kurt had a reputation for swinging first and asking questions later, that sort of thing. Uh, it was well known that he had a very bad temper, Yeah, that he could become violently angry. Rick Collins got on Kurt Thompson's bad side when Kurt's dog bit a child who lived nearby. At the time, Rick was the mayor of Toulon, and he sent out the city marshal, the policeman who was on the city payroll, to do a routine call about the incident, check that the dog was vaccinated and properly registered. It led to some fines and a little bit of trouble for Kurt Thompson. Somewhere in this uh, period, uh, there was a retirement party nearby, about seven miles from town, just over the county line in the next county, and I had stopped by to wish the retiree a, a happy retirement. Kurt and his wife were there, and, and in the process of walking past our table, I stopped and said, hello, Kurt, and hello, Virginia. And, and just as I've said it to you, and, and as it came to pass, Kurt followed me out and began shouting and yelling obscenities at me. And, and when we reached a, a, a staircase, uh, he basically hit me from behind, pushing me down a flight of stairs. And I wasn't injured. I caught myself, uh, you know, without tumbling and, and got to the bottom. And I thought, boy, this is, this is not good. I got outside and drove home, and uh, at that point, I think I did turn it in. I, I called the uh, the sheriff and reported what had happened, and they were not interested. They said, well, it happened in another county, so uh, not to worry. And 
So I called the district attorney of that county because uh, while this isn't really good pushing public officials down a flight of stairs, and that state's attorney wasn't too interested in pursuing it, and that's kind of where it lay. In fact, this was the pattern around town for decades. People would try to get the police and courts to take action, but either they wouldn't pick up the case, or if they did, Kurt Thompson would just get a slap on the wrist. Some of his actions were shocking. He threatened a sheriff repeatedly, told him he'd bury him, ran him off the road, and only ended up with a $111 fine and 100 hours of community service. The couple that he eventually murdered, Jim and Janet Giesenhagen, he'd been feuding with for over a decade. He'd circle around their house in his truck at 8 in the morning when their daughter was just leaving for school. They started driving her, even though the school was just a few blocks away. One day, Thompson told them that he'd kill them. They got a judge to issue an order of protection, ordering him to stay away. He didn't. In the next days, um, there was Thompson in his truck glaring. Again, reporter Robert Curson. And so Giesenhagen, believing that all he needed was evidence of this violation of the order of protection, and that would finally, hopefully, put Thompson away, attaches a video camera to his home and tapes Thompson breaking repeatedly these orders of protection. According to what I was told, these tapes were turned over to authorities and nothing happened. I, I watched every minute, every second of those videotapes. There was nothing on there that you could use as evidence to substantiate bringing a criminal charge. Richard Schwind is with the Illinois Attorney General's office and worked on the murder case against Kurt Thompson. The tapes that we were given did not show a violation. It showed that Mr. Thompson would drive on the public way behind uh, the Giesenhagen home, but there was nothing to show that would substantiate any violation. So if he was just driving through this alley, that wouldn't that wouldn't constitute a violation. No, he has a he had a right to to be on a public way. If he went onto the Giesenhagen property, that would be a different story. Mr. Thompson knew how far to push the envelope and how far to go before violating the law. True enough, says the former mayor, Rick Collins. But he believes that when he was mayor, there were clear opportunities for Toulon to do more to stop Kurt Thompson, and especially for the town policemen to enforce rules against Kurt Thompson. But the policeman, he says, wouldn't take action. There had been complaints previously about Kurt's woodpile and the trash around his house and abandoned cars and that sort of thing. And uh, our city marshal wasn't too interested in uh, pursuing anything with Kurt. Why? Well, you know, I, I think that, that I should preface this by saying we've all got blood on our hands. Yeah. Uh, all of us should have pressed the issue. Um, Do you remember having conversations with, with, the mar- with the marshal, with the sheriff, with the police, uh, where, where you'd say, you know, we've got to enforce this? Yes. I did say we have to do something about this. It's only going to get worse. And what'd they say? They said, don't worry about it. Uh, it's our problem. Hmm. There was no appetite for enforcing any ordinances in regard to Kurt. This is one of the reasons I resigned. If you can't control your city employees and the city council is not willing to back you up, then you really have no business being the mayor. See, I wonder if even if you all had enforced all these things, you know, the level of punishment that, that Kurt Thompson would have gotten would have been, would have been pretty minimal. Oh, yeah. And, and so in the end, would it have actually uh, forestalled a big tragedy happening like what happened? Yes, I believe it would have, Ira. It's been my observation that 
whether one is a school teacher or a policeman or whatever, regardless of your position, even in the, the, an employer, when you have rules and the rules are enforced unequivocally, when people know that certain actions bring certain results, uh, they tend not to violate the rules. And Kurt is no different than the rest of us. And when an individual feels that they are above or immune or can violate law with impunity, they will do so. And they'll continue to do it with, with increasing uh, severity until something happens. It's interesting to hear, like, you, you feel very confident that if lines had been drawn early on, it would never have gotten to this point. Without a doubt. Yeah. Absolutely without a doubt. Hmm. There is no question in my mind whatsoever. Rick Collins says that when he tried to get the six members of the Toulon City Council to act to force the town policemen to go after Kurt Thompson, there was so little interest, they never even came to a vote. The Toulon policeman that he wanted to take action is named Bob Taylor. He's still the marshal in Toulon, and he says that he has no regrets about how he handled Kurt Thompson. Kurt Thompson was not like other people, at least most people in a small town. Uh, He was very antisocial. He was just a guy that I think uh, aggressive action may have just sped things up, not not headed him off. You think aggressive action w- would have had the opposite effect from what the mayor is saying? I that's that'd be my belief. Yes. You think aggressive action actually would have, would have set him off? Right. He'd have probably been as defiant as he normally was. Probably would have pushed things to the limit. Normally, when somebody is in trouble in Toulon. People step in to help. When Dean Grieve got sick a few weeks ago, some neighbors harvested his corn and beans. When a big windstorm knocked out power for a few days this summer, people showered in each other's houses, helped out as they could. Every few weeks, there are all sorts of benefit suppers and dances and auctions for people who are sick or doing badly. Where usually 100 to 300 people will show up. This, remember, in a town of 1,400. With Kurt Thompson, the community collectively decided to avoid the problem. Jim Nolan edits the town paper, the Stark County News. He says maybe a half dozen people were being harassed by Kurt Thompson at any given time, but it just wasn't the sort of thing you could hold a benefit for. It wasn't clear exactly what to do. I think if you were to do a movie about a story like this, there would probably be some Jimmy Stewart type who would become so aroused, maybe at the lack of action taken by others, that he would simply, uh, you know, with a, carrying a torch, gather the townsfolk in the square and march on Kurt Thompson's house and simply demand that he come out and uh, apologize and and uh, commit never to do anything like that again. Uh, but that didn't happen. The Jim Nolan sounds a little bit like Jimmy Stewart as he says all this. There was no Jimmy Stewart in town to end the story that way. And if anything, the scenario the people in Toulon sometimes talked about for Kurt Thompson was a much darker one. Here's Robert Curson, the reporter. Many people in the aftermath thought that someone should have gone and taken care of him physically. Uh, people, people, people actually said this to you. Yes, that... Um, vigilante justice was the only option remaining. In the story that you wrote, you tell the story uh, at one point of the town of Skidmore, Missouri, uh, in 1981, and they faced a similar kind of uh, figure, a guy named uh, Ken McElroy, who got into all sorts of feuds. Um, talk about what happened in, in that case. It was a very similar setup. Uh, the town, like Toulon, watched out for each other. 
They took care of each other. This guy rode into town and started terrorizing in much the same way that Kurt Thompson did. He kept uh, vendettas going. Uh, he was violent. And he seemed above the law. The reaction of the people in Skidmore was different than it was in Toulon. They surrounded his truck in broad daylight, 30 or 40 of them, and murdered him. Someone shot him. 30 or 40 witnesses. The police came in to solve the murder. Nobody would say who fired the shots. Nobody would talk. Everybody knew who did it. To this day, that case in Missouri remains open and unsolved. Nobody will speak. It's funny, like, the idea of, you know, we should look out for each other. We should be, we should be each other's keeper. We usually think of it as driving us towards acts of um, kindness. You know, when somebody's sick, when somebody's, when somebody's in trouble. Um, it, it's odd to think of it as, as, as being an impulse that would actually drive a group of people to, to kill somebody. Well, everybody in this town agreed on one thing. They could either hope that nothing bad happened and just continue to live with the problem or blank. The town of Skidmore, Missouri filled in the blank. The town of Toulon was not able to fill in that blank. Of course, if you're in a situation where your only choices are do nothing or vigilante murder, things can't get much worse. Kurt Thompson went to trial for his three murders. These days he sits on death row, where, if Illinois lifts its moratorium on the death penalty someday, the people of Illinois will finally fill in that blank. Now have you read of the fable of Cain and Abel? Once there war in a scandal that shook the town. Well, our program was produced today by Diane Cook and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Jane Golombiski, and Starley Kine. Our senior producer is Julie Snyder. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production help from Todd Bachman and Kelsey Diltz. Special thanks today to Aurora Aguilar and the staff of WBEZ's 848. Also Krista Tippett, Everett Fox, Sandy Sasso, Ellen Davis, Deborah Ermis, Maya Thomas. Kathy Potasnik, Allison Cuddy, Dimitri Shub, Tikva Freimer-Kensky, Jason DeRose, Connie Dennison, and Don St. John. Music help from Consigliere Saraval and Stacey Titterington. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org, where you can listen to our shows for free. Or now, you can buy CDs. Do you hear me? CDs. Or you can download audio of our show at audible.com slash thisamericanlife. Where they have public radio programs, best-selling books, even the New York Times, all at audible.com. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show comes from Volkswagen of America and the new Touareg SUV, the Volkswagen that does what other Volkswagens don't. More about the Touareg at VW.com. And from the Kauffman Foundation of Kansas City, accelerating entrepreneurship across America on the web at KAUFFMAN.org. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. It reminds me all the time. Pardon me, but I'm going to say this bluntly. Most of the country doesn't give a dick about what you say or what I say. And yet, we'll be back next week with more stories of this American life. Let yourself take a lesson from Cain and Abel. PRI, Public Radio International.